Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for checking into the best Houston sports podcast. It's Robert along with Sports Radio 610's Sean Bajani. If you're new to the show, welcome to the party. 45 years in journalism between the two of us. 35 covering sports in the age and Texans, Astros, Cougars all on tap in this one. And Sean, the Texans finished all their head coach initial interviews or have they? Where in the process are we right now? Initial interviews are done. They're completed. Mike Kafka was the last of the candidates to interview. That was this past Sunday. And I guess it wrapped up somewhere around the early afternoon. That's when we got the text or the email. Um, so what 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 we can expect going forward is the Texans to not talk with D'Amico Ryans, Jonathan Gannon, or Shane Steichen until after January 30th. And that's because they're playing in the AFC slash NFC championship games. And so they're just following league rules in that regard. It's the same thing every year. So that means the Texans can, if they want to, have second interviews with um, the other candidates like uh, Jairo Evero, uh, Mike Kafka, if they so choose, Sean Payton, if they want to, Thomas Brown, um, Ben Johnson, obviously already pulled out of the running. And I think I mentioned that, I think, I think that's all the names, unless I'm forgetting one, which I don't think I am, but, um, that's kind of where we are right now. So we just kind of sit and wait, enjoy the AFC NFC championship games. And, you know, if you're a Jonathan Gannon, Shane Steichen fan, go Eagles. If you're a D'Amico Ryan fan, go 49ers, and we'll see what happens. Yeah, I was just going to bring that up. And by the way, before we get to that, just a quick reminder to subscribe and comment on YouTube. It's the best way to support the show. And if you want to just listen in your car while you exercise or wherever, you can just listen to us on your favorite podcast app. But yeah, Sean, watching the games this past weekend, 49ers defensive coordinator D'Amico Ryan's Eagles DC Jonathan Gannon, Eagles OC Shane Steichen, they had a pretty good weekend. The Giants OC Mike Kafka, not so much. No, not so much. And it, it went about as I, I as I thought it would. I, I mean, I expected a better showing from the Giants. There's no doubt about that. But I, the teams that won, I fully expected them to take care of business as they did. Um, I found myself really wanting Nick Sirianni as my head coach, though, watching that Eagles game. <laughs> <laughs> he's so he's so fun to watch when the camera's on him, man. He gets so worked up. He's so excited. And um, I mean, he's running all over the place. And, you know, that's kind of how we've seen D'Amico Ryans before, too, as a defensive coordinator with the 49ers. He's up and down the sidelines, high-fiving guys. Um, when times are good and when times are not good, you know, he's, he's a coach. Um, he does what – we all expect to see, uh, you know, good coaches do. And that's, uh, you know, just grinding it out in the huddles and, you know, trying to figure stuff out. But I thought uh, everybody had a really good showing in terms of the top candidates. Mike Kafka, obviously, not being one of those. Um, it was unfortunate because you know, for a lot of people, when I say that, I mean, because he's their favorite. And why? I'm not exactly sure. You know, a 35-year-old guy, and we talked about this a little bit the other day. I'd just like to see somebody a little bit more proven, a little, um, you know, more track record um, and history to them. Um, not to say that Mike Kafka, if he wants to be, and obviously he does uh, want to be a head coach in the NFL one day. I'd just like to see him get some more years of experience under his belt and um, something more you could kind of point point to uh, on that resume. But, man, John Gannon and Shane Steichen, the job that they did uh, with their respective sides of the ball for the Eagles. I mean, that was really fun to watch. And how about D'Amico Ryans, man? Um, you know, shutting down one of the top offenses 
um, in the entire league. That, that makes me want to ask you, though, uh, D'Amico Ryans, according to betting sites, he's the favorite. So who is saying that Kafka is the favorite? Well, I, mean, I think a lot of people around here, you know, started to really like Mike Kafka, um, you know, just because of what he'd done with quarterbacks before the job that he'd done in New York. And it was like, well, yeah, but I mean, he's kind of, he's calling the plays, um, but it's really Brian Dayball's offense, right? You know, so we don't know as much as we think we do. Don't just look at the overall success. Don't just look at, Hey, this guy, Dan Jones can actually play a little bit. Um, That's why I say, I'd like to see where he's able to put his stamp on an offense where he's able to put his stamp, you know, on X, Y, Z players going forward. But yeah, I mean, there's no question from a national standpoint and yeah, too, from a local standpoint in general, I think, yeah, D'Amico is certainly a guy. It's somebody you're familiar with, but I heard, I've, I've heard a lot of Kafka talk over the course of the last couple of weeks. I, I guess, I guess I missed it. I don't know. I guess I missed it because, you know, I, I've heard our, our Texans fans, they know who D'Amico Ryans is. Yeah, you don't exactly. have to sell them on that. You don't have to sell them on Sean Payton. I, I, I haven't heard the Kafka talk. I don't know if that's just something happened in talk radio or where you're hearing that. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, I hosted a lot last week and, you know, just reading text line callers and, you know, some other guys around the station. That was some of it, too. Um, and I, I look, I read a lot. I consume as much as I possibly can. Um, and. I thought Kafka's name had been growing, but that was the key, right? It was good to see a guy like D'Amico Ryans. The three favorites in my mind, not named Sean Payton, all took care of business and all kind of triple stamp the double stamp, if you will, like with a W, all right? D'Amico Ryans had a great showing with his 49ers defense and, you know, respectively with both sides on the, uh, uh, for the coordinators for the Eagles did as well, uh, Steichen and Gannon. So um, I, I just, I thought it was a really great, game by the 49er defense um, to do what they did to neutralize Dak and that offense. Um, and it didn't look like it was going to be like that at first. You know, they strike early with the first touchdown and, you know, Brett Mayhar has Brett Mayhar issues. Um, <laughs> I think got bailed out a little bit with the block extra point because it was probably going to be missed anyway <laughs> but uh he seems to have, as Jerry Jones said, exonerated himself on that. But man, D'Amico, the number one thing about D'Amico is like, yeah, he's super stacked defensively over there with a lot of talent on that side of the ball, but it's also the guys that he's gotten the most out of, a couple of former Texans, um, and probably, you know, the, for the namesake, who was, I think, Big 12 Player of the Year before he was uh, drafted by the Texans as Charles Menehue. I thought that guy should have worked here in Houston. I, I missed that guy. I thought he was an absolute stud and could have been a really, really good player for the Texans. But D'Amico's gotten his paws on him and has gotten the very best out of him, and it's fun to see. Um, who is it? Uh, is it Gibson, who I'm thinking of um, for the 49ers, another, well, another former it's Texan? Just, it's not just a Menehu. You watch the 49ers and you're like, man – we had Shanahan in the building. We had D'Amico Ryans in the building. We yeah. had Charles Amenehu in the building. They, they have so many guys that have gone through either the organization or that are still there that are former Texans, and it looks like a real Super Bowl-caliber-type organization year in and year out. They just know how to do it without having one of the better quarterbacks in the NFL. They're running out a seventh-rounder at the end of the seventh round right now, and they're in the NFC championship game and you're like, yeah. man, these guys, they do it right. And, and, and they were here in Houston and why are they not here? And why are we in this mess? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
you know, uh, and that's extrapolated out over the course of a handful of years, too. So a lot of things have transpired uh, for one reason or another. But, yeah, I mean, it is frustrating. Hindsight can be uh, a good thing sometimes and other times it can be a bad thing. And looking back at all of those guys and the woulda, coulda, shouldas, um, that's a bad thing. But it does give me, you know, a little hope, and I think it should give a lot of uh, Texan fans uh, some hope because the reports coming out from the D'Amico Ryan's camp um, are all good indicators. You know, he canceled uh, upcoming interviews with the Indianapolis Colts, and I believe the Carolina Panthers was the other one. Um, And so I believe he's made good on interviews with, obviously, the Texans and the Denver Broncos. I'm not sure about the Arizona Cardinals, to be honest with you. Maybe you know better than me. Um, It's been so many teams and coaches trying to follow. I I kind of forget. But in regards to D'Amico canceling those couple of interviews, you could take that one way or the other. You know, maybe one, after coming off of interviews with the Broncos and Texans, maybe he says to himself, damn, you know, these things take too long, you know, and I don't have the time commitment to be able to doing something selfishly. I've got to focus on my team. I've got to prepare for these games. And so I think maybe that could be an element. Maybe too, he said, you know what? I don't need to talk to anybody else. If I'm going to take this next step in my career, I'm really comfortable with the Broncos and doing a second interview there. I'm really comfortable with the Texans and doing a second interview there. I don't need to talk to anybody else. These are the best situations on paper. It's the best situation um, that I knew going into these interviews. And that's all. Now I want to focus on these games. So it could be a multitude of things like that. Um, but I think it should give Texan fans something to be excited about because, you know, look, he's not going to talk to anybody else. And he spoke to you last. And everything that I've heard said things went very well. If you trust Vegas, and that's something that I pay attention to because they seem to know things, and I don't know how, but somehow Vegas does, and DraftKings has. This is interesting. Besides D'Amico with the Texans, they have Jeff Saturday. He's the favorite for the Colts job to stay there. Shane Steichen is the favorite for the Panthers job. That Shane Steichen, the one that we interviewed. Sean Payton, favored for the Broncos job. Brian Flores who could have been the Texans head coach as we speak, is the favorite for the Cardinals, believe it or not. I don't see D'Amico Ryans as the favorite for any of these jobs except the Texans. And he's, you know, he's on the list. He's not far down the list of favorites for a couple of these jobs. But it's interesting. I'm taking that into note right now. Yeah, I mean, he's kind of pigeonholed himself too, right? Just eliminating two of the five possible job opportunities for himself. So you know, that kind of changes the odds as well. And you're right. I mean, Vegas does know things. And um, sometimes you can actually apply a little bit of logic to the betting odds and the familiarity with the Texans. And um, I I think the kind of coach that they do need, um, maybe a little bit opposite to what fans actually want. If you were going to compromise on any one guy, Robert, and what I mean by that is, Fans, they want an offensive-minded, innovative, young coach, somebody that can bring and develop a young quarterback, if it's Bryce Young, if it's C.J. Stroud, whoever, right? That's the guy that they want, okay? Or you really love D'Amico Ryans. He was a fan favorite. People loved him here. He's a natural leader. I mean, he's got vouchers from 
all over the league. You know, the greatest Texan of all time, J.J. Watt, is in his corner. And so if that's the case, it makes it sound even better. But look, everybody that's interested, everybody that wants to talk about this stuff has done their homework. They know what D'Amico brings to the table. They know he's that natural leader. They know he is also that calming influence, that, that steady hand, if you will. When times get tough, when times are great, very even keel, true professional, and I feel like that's also something the Texans need in this organization desperately. It really kind of comes down to one thing, communication. I'll say two things, and maybe there's a lot more of these, but you know where I'm getting at. Communication and control aspect when it comes to the relationship between the new head coach and the Texans' current general manager, Nick Casario. The thing with the Texans, as we know, it looks good right now. Everything's good. You're just kind of waiting. They're almost at the finish line. When did the Texans – stumble and fumble and trip over a piece of paper that's out on the course because they screw things. I just like, they always do. So I, I think I'm happy with where they are right now. I'm happy with who they've got as candidates and some of the finalists and who we're talking about. Like the buzz is about has got me excited. Just don't screw up that final 50 meters of the 800 meter race. Just don't screw it up. They've got a lot of races to run, and this is the first one, you know, finding their head coach. Um, the next race is going to be developing and creating a good, solid relationship between that trio in the front office, Nick Casario and Cal McNair. And, you know, if you want to mention Janice McNair, um, you want to mention Hannah McNair, you want to mention Craig Grissom, you know, all parties involved, just the front office, right? You've got to create that dynamic, and it's got to be a good, solid foundation for one there. Then the next is the draft and free agency. Um, and you kind of just go step by step, but getting the head coach, the right guy, not a fan favorite, um, not an easy hire, not something that looks good on paper, but kind of all encompassing. D'Amico's certainly going to excite the fan base, maybe more so than any other head coach candidate out there, um, even Sean Payton. So, hey, great. That's a win for the Texans. Um, but from a character standpoint, from a professional, from, um, you know, something solid that you can point to and say, this guy has done that. He's had this success and he's developed these players. You've got that with D'Amico Ryans. Um, and they're still playing. And that's a great thing. And you get to see more. And I, I, I think that would be probably the best hire. Along with Sean Payton, Robert, I mean, what two guys? There aren't any. There's no two other individuals in this group of candidates. And the Colts have interviewed everybody under the sun. And for some reason, Vegas thinks they're still going to go with Jeff Saturday. I mean, it just blows my mind. So I don't know if I'm betting on that one or not, but maybe I should because they are the Colts and they seem to do some weird and wacky things these days, similarly to the Texans. But I mean, there's no two guys that hold a torch, you know, to D'Amico Ryan's and Sean Payton's resumes. And I know who's going to cost a lot less draft capital. I know who's going to cost a lot less, you know, out of the owner's pockets. And that's D'Amico Ryan's. Sean, we found out this weekend there's a clear front runner for the Astros general manager job. Finally, who is this guy? Who's the front runner? And what can you tell us about him? Uh, Dana Brown, who was actually one of the only one of the three reported candidates that were uh, reported to have interviewed with the Astros for their GM vacancy. Dana Brown. Um, has worked very closely, and I'm going to put. I'm going to try not to butcher his name. But their uh, current general manager for the Atlanta Braves, Alex Anthopoulos, 
Um, those two have been together with a couple of different organizations. They got their start with one another back uh, when the Washington Nationals were still known as the Montreal Expos. They worked together there for a couple of years um, in much lesser capacities, not general manager, assistant general manager or scouting. Uh, but some lesser uh, capacities. They worked together as well with the Toronto Blue Jays. Anthopolis, when he took the GM job with Atlanta, uh, thought so highly of Dana Brown in terms of his talent evaluation and uh, how adamant, you know, he is, um, you know, about about drafting and player development. That That's a guy that was going to challenge him that he wanted in the building with him. And so he brought him to Atlanta. And Dana Brown has been credited by Alex Anthopoulos um, just this past week. I believe it was Sports Illustrated that ran a, a you know pretty succinct article, but uh, pointed nonetheless, um, pointing to some things that Dana Brown um, is known for. And a couple of those guys, you might recognize the name, Spencer Strider, uh, who obviously uh, was very successful starting pitcher for the Atlanta Braves, along with Michael Harris, their center fielder. Um, he was credited with drafting both of those guys and identifying them in a very early stage. Also, another one, um, and I struggle with this guy's name, but uh, uh, Langenhaus, who was their uh, catcher for a little bit in the uh, farm system for the Atlanta Braves, who I believe now is an Oakland Athletic. Uh, he ended up becoming the centerpiece of the deal that brought Matt Olson to the Atlanta Braves to replace uh, Freddie Freeman, who obviously they lost to the Los Angeles Dodgers. And so he identified these these talented players that ended up, you know, paying dividends for them on the field now and certainly uh, helped them facilitate uh, trades in other areas. So he's a good baseball guy, um, is trusted as a hard worker, um, has been there, done that. Um, and that's that's exactly the kind of person, Robert, that I feel like this Astros organization needs going forward. Yeah, and the low key, the Atlanta Braves have been a really good franchise in the last few years. It seems like the conversation is always around the Astros or the Dodgers or the Yankees or the Red Sox or whoever. And we know the Braves because they beat us in the World Series. And we know that this Braves team has been really good. The You keep an eye on them because they've been really good the last few years. And, no and, and Sean, I, I tell you what, um, I'm interested in what your feelings about Dana's after the Cougs, Dana Dimmel and Dana Holgerson. Are you okay with another Dana coming to Houston after those two? Yeah, I'm trying to like uh, give you a good solid retort and think of a successful Dana, <laughs> <laughs> but I can't right now. Nothing comes to the top of my head. Um, hey, you know what? Dana Holgerson, uh, TBD, right? I mean, I, I get it's been underwhelming, you know, for the last few years. His his his, uh, his tenure at uh, U of H hasn't been, you know, great. But hey, going to the Big Twelve, uh, you know, obviously means huge things for the program. So uh, I think this Dana Brown probably brings in one of the more impressive resumes. Uh, to the city of Houston. Yes, much better um, than the other Dana Browns. That's and, you know, look, Dana Holgerson, his first his first go around here in the city of Houston as just an offensive coordinator. I mean, it was pretty good. Um, then he went on to, uh, you know, bigger and better things and a better conference and, then, you know, more stature as a head coach for West Virginia. And that whole thing comes back and, hey, look, he's taking him into the Big 12 now. How much did he have to do with that? Probably next to nothing. But um, I, I do like the fact that he's kind of been there, done that, has those pipelines recruiting in the Big 12 and Texas school um, now where he, 
you know, began his roots as an offensive coordinator. So I'm going to give him a little bit of leeway there, and I want to see how he takes that program in um, in 2023 into the Big 12. But, man, Dana Brown, it's somebody that I honestly was most excited about when I saw that report about a week or so ago um, in terms of the candidates. It was ex-Marlins. you know, front office executive and ex San Francisco Giants front office executive. This is the only guy that still currently had a job in Major League Baseball today, and is a poignant track record that you can look at and something tangible. You'd be like, "Hey, look, he identified these guys, and look at the dividends that they're paying for the organization." So, when you talk about this Astros organization and their farm system, which has obviously slipped a little bit here in recent years, that needs to be reinvigorated a little bit, become a little bit more richer with talent, um, as it's been depleted with some deals that the Astros have made here in the last three, four seasons. Um, he's a guy that I would trust more so than anybody else amongst those candidates that could, you know, do that for the farm system, but also, um, you know, does bring the, uh, I, I think, the knowledge, the connections, um, obviously, uh, having worked so closely with Alex Anthopoulos. And there's a number of guys, if you look at his resume, that he's got close connections to from the Blue Jays, from the Nationals as well. You've got to feel really good about him with the Astros. Yeah, and I tell you what, uh, Browns had a pretty good week with the Astros to this point, and so did Bills. And we're going to get into that right now because there are two new members of the Astros Hall of Fame. Second baseman, Billy Doran, as in a Bill and broadcaster and friend of the show, Bill Brown. Doran played for the Astros, Sean, from 82 to 90, was absolutely my Jose Altuve growing up. Started with the Astros when I was 10 years old. He was traded in 1991 World Series with the Reds that season. But during the 80s, he led all Astros in runs scored, stolen bases, and walks, was second in hits, third in games played. But I'll remember him as one of the key leaders on that legendary 86 team. And Sean, I can't say he deserves to be in any Hall of Fame. He's just kind of good, but I knew it'd start getting hard to come up with Hall of Famers for the Astros after inducting those 16 guys right off the top. I mean, it's a little bit of fan favorite flair to it too, right? I mean, when you start talking about a team's Hall of Fame, um, a lot of the times it's they're not going to have you know great statistics. And I'm talking great statistics, okay? I mean, some are you know pretty good to very good. Um, and I think Doran's one of those names that's kind of lived in Astro lore um, to a degree, like, you know, a, a Cheo Cruz and, um, you know, there's so many others. I mean, they Ladies like the long ball, but they also like Billy Doran. Let me just point that out as well. Yeah, I've heard that before. <laughs> I've heard that before. That's that, that should probably be the name of his book if he hasn't written one already. But I mean, there's so many other ones. Um, and, and look, I, I think it is important for a team in their Hall of Fame to recognize those that have kind of survived within a fan base. And especially going back to some of those old colors, semi-original uniforms, right? Because they've gone through a billion uniform changes over the years, but that's identifiable to that era, you know, and some of the most uh, favorite memories that Astro fans have through the 80s and those great teams that they had with Mike Scott and Nolan Ryan and Jose Cruz. I mean, there's so many great players. Um, I think Doran in that regard is more than well-deserving. And man, Bill Brown, um, I would have made him a charter member because I know for a lot of people, um, when you started this Hall of Fame, one of the most identifiable names when you were talking about watching or listening to Astros baseball games, I mean, it was Milo Hamilton, it was Bill Brown, it was Bill Worrell, you know, it was Larry Durker. That that was my childhood, 
you know, and so there is a, uh, a generational element to this, but if there's any broadcaster that's deserving, Bill Brown is certainly one of them. Great baseball guy. Yeah. Let's get to Brownie while you're mentioning it. I'm going to come back to the hall of fame stuff in just a second and what we were talking about, but we've had Billy on our show, Bill Brown, that is, uh, you know, Miss Brownie though. Uh, we've had him on the show a few times and Sean, I asked Brownie how he ended up with the Astros. I want everybody to listen what he told me because you'll find out that in a strange way, his job prior to the Astros changed ESPN and how we all see television today. Here's Brownie. Well, you were the you were the Reds broadcaster, and then you were a producer, programmer, and director for a few sports cable networks, including HSC and Pittsburgh. I think. How did you end up with the Astros? Well, I ended up with the Astros because I was with uh, it was a crazy story, but I was with the Financial News Network in Los Angeles. Uh, which morphed into CNBC. And at the time, uh, they were on uh, all during the business hours doing financial news. But at night, they had nothing but uh, paid programming, you know, paid, uh, sales type uh, presentations for different products. And and they wanted uh, a live presence at night as well. And they felt if they could do a sports talk show, that would allow them to sell to approximately the same heavily male-dominated audience that their daytime uh, stock market programming catered to. And so that was what they did. They started that show when uh, Sports Time Cable Network collapsed in Cincinnati. There were about five or six of us on-air people who were under contract for one more year. And they found an assignability clause in our contracts. And they came to us and said, well, you have two choices. You can either uh, work out the remaining year of your contract, uh, moving from Cincinnati to Los Angeles. We'll give you a slight pay adjustment. Or you can take three months severance pay. Well, that wasn't much of a choice. We all chose to move, even, even though none of us really liked the prospects of the job. But there we were doing this nationwide sports talk show on cable uh, for four hours a night with a very small staff, very little money in the budget. But it was something that worked. And uh, we actually must have drawn the attention of ESPN because we had this ticker running across the bottom of the screen, constantly updating scores. And they had never done that until a few months after our network started doing it. So it did get a rise out of them and, and eventually served the viewers of ESPN better. Well, after a couple of years there, I realized uh, with, with the low budgets and uh, our programming probably was about as good as it was ever going to be. And uh, I had pretty much given up on the idea of getting another baseball play-by-play -play job. But Dick Wagner was the general manager of the Astros, and they were in town to play the Dodgers. And I had called ahead to see if he was making the trip, and indeed he was. And he agreed to be on a show with me, which, which was uh, this cable talk show. And we did, I, I think it was either half an hour or an hour show. And I gave him a ride back to his hotel in downtown L.A., and he and I had been in Cincinnati together. He was general manager of the Reds when I was doing the games. And he asked me, well, do you ever want to get back into baseball? I said, well, I'd love to, but I just quit applying for jobs because they're, they're just not seemingly attainable right now. And he said, okay. And, and uh, then in November of that year, I got a call from him saying, well, I remember you said you wanted to get back into baseball. Are you serious about it? And I said, yes, I am. And he said, well, we have an opening right now. And that was right after they fired Gene Elston. And uh, he said, if you're interested in, in applying, our broadcasting director is Art Elliott. You should get in touch with him, and it's up to you from there. And, you know, that's, that's how I wound up getting the job, which was, uh, again, beyond my wildest dreams. And 
Boy, has it worked out well. And as Paul Harvey might say, that's the rest of the story. And Sean, there you go. He could have been Bill O'Reilly instead of Bill Brown with Cable News Network. And, you know, just amazing to me that there was no ticker before they were doing the ticker, I guess. I don't, maybe there, somebody had to be doing the ticker before them, though. Maybe. I don't know. That just seems like it's impossible. I don't know. I mean, a lot of people probably think ESPN came up with it first, but that's like don't bury the lead to me. That's like the, the headline of the whole story. Like, yeah, I'm glad Brownie, you know, got, got to Houston in the fashion that he did just, I don't care how he got here as long as he got here, but the ticker, I mean, are you kidding me? Like that his network came up with the ticker and then ESPN stole it from them. Like that, that is ESPN. That is, that's the reason why they are who they are, to be honest with you and keep the viewers that they do because during the down times of the year, when you're watching Frisbee golf on a Saturday afternoon, you know, on ESPN, you're not watching that. You're watching the ticker because all the important stuff, you know, in teams off seasons and <laughs> the sports off season, the news is at the ticker. And so that's why I keep it on 24 seven in my household. If anybody knows me, I mean, you better not come in my house and try to turn that off because that's how I get all most of my information, the impetus of it. So that's, that's super important. Don't bury the lead. Yeah. I think the thing about the ticker that's interesting is, Sometimes the ticker might make you think, oh, that game is on some other channel. And I've noticed that the Rockets don't put a ticker at the bottom of the screen during their games because they know somebody's probably going to change with the way the Rockets are. But they haven't done that for, for years. That's the least of their problems. <laughs> but, the, but the Astros, they don't do it either. I noticed during the Olympics, there is no t they try to keep the screen pretty clean. So some people have gone the other way. Sometimes the ticker gets on my nerves. I don't know if you have this, but I've got the zoom button on my screen and I will take out the ticker. Sometimes you can do that without really messing up what you're seeing. And, and sometimes it just gives you a little bit closer view and you're like, oh, this is this looks a whole lot better when I zoom in a, a little bit and take out that stupid ticker. I haven't used that zoom feature on one of my TVs in probably 10 years. So like one of the TVs that I had before, you know, I had like five remotes where I had to keep up with. I had one and it actually had the zoom button on it. And I'm like, oh, let's see what this does. And I was like, oh, wow, this is cool. Who needs instant replay? I can do it myself. You know, pause and zoom. This is fantastic. But I have too many remotes to keep up with now. And I don't know of any one of them that actually has that feature without going to a menu first to access it. So I, I, I'm pro ticker. I want to remind people, speaking of the Astros Hall of Fame, and I'll go back there for a second, because if you've, if you look on our YouTube channel, you will find that we had a seven minute clip that I put up me and Steven, we went into a diatribe on how the Astros had kind of boxed themselves in by saying they were going to name a hall of famer every year, but they go with that 16 in their inaugural class and shot. It starts getting hard, but I mentioned in that diatribe, there are guys out there that have not gone in Dave Smith, Mike Hampton, Phil Garner, Brad Lidge, who are deserving. And I would put those four guys as much as I like Billy Doran, I would probably put them ahead. I mean, Brad Lidge was a key guy, taken to the World Series a couple of times. Phil Garner, two of the great comebacks in all of baseball history to win those, uh, to, to actually get into the playoffs, not win the division, I think. It was get, just get into the playoffs. But then, you know, he was the first Astro manager that got a playoff victory for the Astros. He was the first Astro manager that got you to the World Series, not to mention he also played for the Astros. And Smitty was one of the all-time best Astros closers. Absolutely. You look at uh, the saves, it's top of the Astros list. And he was one of the best closers, I think, in Astros history in the clutch. Unfortunately, 
he will be remembered for that 86 Met series. And the Mets were all for people that don't know this, they were always his kryptonite. He always had an issue with the Mets. And Mike Hampton, I don't think I have to convince anybody how good Mike Hampton was. You know, he's one of the better pitchers in baseball during those uh, early uh, Astros, uh, that early Astros run in from the yeah. early, late 90s and into the very early 2000s. Yeah, the Durker years. Yeah, no doubt about that. I, you made me like crunch my face a little bit when you said Dave Smith is not in the Astros Hall of Fame because I was like, wait a minute. How is that possible? Like, and then too, I was like, well, thinking, well, hold on, he's got to be in the Hall of Fame. Isn't his number retired? But I guess, yeah, I guess it's not. I think they probably decided to wait a little bit and get the people that are alive while they're still alive because they can do Dave Smith later. Unfortunately, Dave passed away very early and, you know, long, long before he should have. That's, uh, you know, that's, that's something that I'm kind of uh, championing, you know, with the Houston Sports Hall of Fame. Um, and particularly with the baseball players, because it's tough. Anytime you start a Hall of Fame, think about it. Like the city of Houston's been around for a long time, right? You know, we've got a lot of Astro history, football history, basketball history, you name it. I mean, that that spans, you know, you're, you're going on 70, 70 some odd years, right? With the major sports history in our city. Um, and so I've really been championing to get former baseball players, particularly recognized that should be in the Houston Sports Hall of Fame. And, you know, my grandfather is one of them. You see him over my shoulder here, along with his brother, Gus Mancuso. Um, I think they should be in and Jerry Woody and Larry Miggins and um, uh, Red Munger. And, you know, just there, there are so many other guys that that were great ball players in the 30s, 40s, 50s it's tough when you start a hall of fame like this day and age, because you want to appeal to the people that would appreciate them now. And it's very difficult when, you know, there are gentlemen that, um, you know, have since passed on, you know, like my relatives um, that are deserving to be in, but they have to wait even longer. You know what I'm saying? And so sex sells, baby sex sells. It does. And you just got to be patient, but uh, I understand how that works. So I think that's probably a really good point by you. I think that's probably a lot to do with it. And ultimately you just want to have the men and women recognized, you know, in a respective hall of fame, if they should be in, you need to get them in. And I've kind of been a proponent of sprinkling those guys in, so to speak. You don't have to just focus on like, hey, here's all the great, you know, 34s. Here's all the, you know, champions, you know, guys that won Super Bowls and World Series and so on and so forth. It's, hey, let's let's recognize everybody, you know, because. Well, it, it wasn't like Nolan Ryan was 23. Nolan Ryan was about 70 when they put him in there and. And, you know, Earl Campbell is not in great health. So I get it from that perspective. Hey, Akeem, happy birthday. I think he just turned 60. 60. Can you believe that? Like, you know, I, I'm done with, like, stuff trying to make me feel old. I mean, I'm, I've hit the 40 mark, you know, myself. So it's kind of, like, definitely all downhill from here, man. It's whatever. But I saw that the other day on Twitter. I was like, wait, what, 60? How is that possible? And then my wife was like, wait. How old is Charles Barkley? How old is Michael Jordan? How old is Scotty? All these great players, you know, that we remember watching when we were kiddos. And it's like, well, if Dream is sixty, like they're not far behind, or they're a little past them. Well, you see Dream at the games, and he looks the same. I mean, he doesn't look like he's aged that. I mean, talk about aging great. I mean, Akeem. 
you know, it's funny that you say that. Uh, did you see the picture of Fred McGriff uh, make its rounds on social media today, you know, with his Hall of Fame jersey on? I missed um, that. Oh, my. I can't believe that's Fred McGriff. It looks like he looks like he played ball in like the 40s. <laughs> He's, he didn't even have a mustache anymore. And I'm like, man, you talk about guys that have aged. Like, I look at Fred McGriff. And then I look at Frank Thomas, who is an analyst, you know, on Fox Sports for these baseball games. And then I look at Jeff Bagwell and I'm like, these guys all played in the same era. Why does Fred McGriff look like Satchel Paige more than he does himself? It's just kind of crazy. Yeah, I don't want to say anything because I don't know how I'm aging myself. But yeah, and, and you know, <laughs> McGriff, it's interesting. And I had forgotten this uh, until I was looking for information on Billy Doran today, but there was a guy named McGriff who was one of the players to be named later when Billy Doran was traded from the Astros to the Reds. And I had forgotten the names because they were players to be named later at that time. And yeah, it, it's uh, some guy, I think it was like Terry McGriff or something, but yeah, there was, there were three players and none of them ever became relevant at all for the Astros. But yeah, they were all in that Billy Doran trade to the Reds. And it was sad to see him go because, you know, like I said, he was a guy that was just so huge. And, oh, I mean, it just all through the 80s, it was Billy Doran at second base. And you could just count on it. There he is, another year. Um, yeah. and, and I tell you what, um, uh, I haven't seen Billy Doran recently. So I'm kind of wondering when... They do introduce him in in August, I guess it will be. How's he looking? You know, because I haven't seen Billy D. Yeah, it's crazy. Doran, you just got me thinking about it. You know, um, respective to like teams, you know, favorite eras, like from a fan base perspective, like the favorite era of their team, right? Like before most recently, the six-year stretch with the Astros winning two World Series, it was probably the 80s, right? Um. And I'm trying to think, like, if you had a top five favorite player list from that era, like Jose Cruz would probably be the, the top of that list, I'm guessing. Jose Cruz, Mike Scott, Nolan Ryan, Billy Dorn's probably a really solid four, right? And I'm trying to think of who would be a fifth. Uh, Kevin Bass, maybe uh, mm. Glenn Davis was definitely huge during that. Glenn Davis is a guy I could see Glenn getting Davis. in the Astros Hall of, Hall of Fame because of his, uh, he was really one of the big power hitters of that entire 70s, 80s, not like the only guy in the 70s and 80s that was giving you power outside of maybe a Bob Watson or a Cesar Cedeno or something yeah. like that. Yeah, that's a really good pull. Glenn Davis is a good one. Kevin Bass is pretty good too. Um, Kevin Bass, that's – you talk about a guy that doesn't change. Like if he had his mustache, he'd still look the same to me, but he lost his stash a long time ago. <laughs> but that, that's, that's a really good poll. I think, you know, the Astros have done a really good job of recognizing a lot of guys in the nineties and two thousands. I think Shane Reynolds is even in the Astros hall of fame already. He's, yeah. Yeah. He, he's got, he got in too. And and the names that I was trying to remember, Terry McGriff, Keith Kaiser and Butch Henry were the three that were in the Billy Doran. Trade. Oh, wow. Butch Henry. <laughs> <laughs> wait, yeah. he didn't wait. No, there was a couple of Henry's. It wasn't Butch Henry. I'm thinking of like Doug Henry. He he did make it to the bigs, but maybe not Butch. Hey, uh, w one last thing we got to get to, and we can't forget this, this team, because they're the number one team or were the number one team in the country going into this weekend. Kelvin Sampson's Cougars had a, oh, it's a bad loss. Huge upset. Uh, Temple was a 20 point underdog and the Cougs 
lose on a buzzer beater. Tremont, well, they didn't lose on the buzzer beater, but they missed a buzzer beater. Tremont Mark misses a four or five footer at the buzzer. So they dropped from number one to number three in the basketball polls. You were at the game on Sunday. What'd you think? I mean, I'm not going to say I, I, I couldn't see it coming. I just really thought that around the seven, eight minute mark of the second half that they were going to be able to really tighten things up and pull this one out because it was sketchy right around that time, you know, kind of ballooned to a, a seven point deficit. And that's as much as I'd seen the Cougars trail by maybe all season. And I that might be fact. I don't know if they've been in a deficit that large all season. They've usually played from ahead. It was the first uh, time all year where they didn't have a lead at halftime. Mind you, they going into Saturday's game, they was it Sunday, they played 20 games. Okay, so, I mean, that was a thing, and they were tied at 30. But, you know, down the stretch, they tightened things up defensively. They helped Temple to just 5 of 21 shooting uh, the last uh, seven minutes of the game. They just couldn't buy a bucket themselves. And even though they, they did hit their free throws down the stretch, it was what led up to that. They couldn't hit free throws uh, during the bulky part of the game. They were hoard from three um, for all of the game. When you say they hit free throws down the straight, they, they might have hit a couple. But let me just tell you, I was watching that game, and every time I looked up, I'm talking about in the last in the last uh, you know three four minutes. I mean, that's how they kind of chipped away, chipped away, chipped away. Is you know, yeah, they kept yeah. into the free throw line. They hit free throws, but. It was they had so many easy buckets. Well, it was the free throw. The free throws was the difference in the game because uh, one team was had 21 free throws. The other team had 22 free throws. One team missed two and the other team missed 10. And that's the difference right there. And even though the Cougars couldn't hit anything all game, their defense, as usual, kept them in it the whole time. They had balls like rattling in and out. There was just there were shots that were at the rim that just rolled off the rim rimmed out. I mean, it was just all of that stuff. And, you know, it was just like pulling teeth for them to get a basket. And it was absolutely the free throws and just near misses on offense that cost them the game. The defense, you know, it could have been a little bit tighter. It wasn't maybe classic Cougar defense, but it was good enough. I thought the defense was stellar, you know, the final seven or eight minutes of the ball game. But there was a period late first half, early second half, where Temple really kind of was able to get any kind of look that they wanted. And it was an adjustment by Kelvin Sampson, you know, to just allow them to switch one through five. And that seemed to work really well because Temple was so good at attacking the basket and just drive and kick, drive and kick. And at one point, Temple hit five of ten from three. And that just absolutely killed the Cougs, who just seemed like they had to scratch and claw for every point they put on the board. And, yeah, ultimately what you say is not wrong. I mean, the free throws, you look at the box score, that's certainly what it came down to. If the Cougars hit those 10 free throws, eight of them, okay, it's still a close ball game, Robert. And I just felt like that should not have been as close of a ball game. I felt like the Cougars were so much more aggressive. And I'm not going to blame a thing on the referees, even though that what they, they did not get a lot of calls that prob- they probably should have in both halves, but they were so aggressive. And you saw the frustration from Kelvin Sampson on the sideline. when they would- I want to mention that because they lost by one point, and I'm like, this game is going to come down to probably one point. Kelvin, I know he got upset about that, but I did not think that was some egregiously bad call. And I'm like, man, you cannot give away a point right there. I, you know, Kelvin Sampson, love you to death, but every blue moon, every 
once every couple of years, you're going to make a mistake. And that was a mistake. You can't get a technical right there in the last few minutes of a game that you know is coming down to the very end and a point can make the difference, which it did. Yeah, no. And look, he was obviously frustrated there. But what I was really talking about in terms of his frustration is when the Cougars would get to the hole and they had great looks they they really tried to just kind of throw up these circus shots, almost, you know, evading contact. And I didn't get a chance to ask Kelvin this, who was bombarded with questions after the game, obviously, um, and wasn't available today. He's talking to this restaurant, um, some oyster house tonight, as he usually does on Mondays. But um, <clears throat> what I think he was frustrated at, too, was the lack of physicality by his team. And a lot of times guys will talk about that as like effort, energy, things like that. I just thought the Cougs had opportunity after opportunity when they got to the paint to just go up strong and make them value. Let them value. Go to the free throw line. That's a ball game in which the Cougars, regardless of what you thought of the referees, they should have shot 35 free throws that game. And if they would have hit 17 of them, that's the difference in the, in the ball game. And, you know, I talked to uh, Juwan Roberts uh, earlier today. Um, after practice, I talked to Jamal Shedd after practice today. They both said, hey, effort. And that's what it comes down to, just effort and being more aggressive and playing their style of basketball. And what they typically do is they don't focus so much on the opponent, but rather themselves. And they kind of got away from that, you know, the last uh, couple of three games. You know, they played a close one against USF just 12, 13 days ago. And that was a game that Kelvin Sampson, even afterwards, said they very well could have lost, but they didn't. They won. Sometimes teams get lucky. He didn't go as far to say that Temple got lucky yesterday rather than just, you know what? <laughs> we got beat today. We didn't play our brand of basketball uh, you know, for a full 40 minutes. And that's kind of the price you pay. And hopefully they got UCF coming up on Wednesday. That is another team, Robert, that played them very close this season. And they're not used to playing in these close ball games. I hope, I hope it's another, you know, knockdown drag out. And I hope the Cougs are a better team for it because you don't have Alabama's and Virginia's on your schedule the rest of the way. And you know what, if some of these teams like UCF, USF and Temple, you know, give you a run for your money, then, to me, you have to be able to embrace that and use those close games as teachable moments. You can't feel that bad because Kansas got their doors blown off by TCU. It's the year of the Horn Frog. They lost by 20 at Allen Fieldhouse. Not that TCU's any slouch. They're in the top 15, 16 in the country. But still, you never see Kansas getting their doors blown off. But I mean, I, I know Kansas very well because I, you know, my, my Missouri Tigers were in their conference for decades and decades and decades. So uh, that was a big deal, I thought. And, you know, you look out there and you're like, yeah, the Cougars, there's not anybody that scares you when I look at these other college basketball teams. So they're in, in a good situation. But I mentioned the free throws specifically, not just because I think it was important in this game, but it's a issue. It's an issue all the time, it seems like. with the, It is a perennial issue with the Cougars with free throws. This goes back to Fislam Pajama and Akeem and Clyde were not great at shooting free throws either, as I recall it. And so, you know, I worry about that. If there's one thing that I worry about the Cougars in a close game in the tournament is that those free throws will cost you. And that's the key. Look, they were 11 for 21 yesterday shooting free throws. But you look up and down that box score, Robert, there wasn't one guy that was one for five, zero oh for four. I mean, we're all two for four, one for two. 
two for three. You know, I mean, it just kind of came down to those moments. And they're not all 70-plus percent free throw shooters. There's some bad ones on the team, certainly. There are on every team. And it's something that the Cougars have actually done better you know, of late where they'd gotten their percentage up from a team standpoint to up and around 70, 71, 72%, somewhere around there. And they didn't, they didn't meet that mark yesterday, but it comes down to those moments in a game where this might be just some whatever game against Temple or a USF or a UCF, but you have to treat those singular moments as if it's a tournament game and the game is on the line. And you need these free throws when you're down by three with eight minutes left and your team is on the verge of making a run and you can really send them over the top. You know what I mean? It's moments like that. Yes, Sean, totally agree with you. Yeah, then these next few games are going to be crucial for them to set up going into the tournament. Yeah, they got to get this stuff squared away, especially the free throw shooting. That's going to matter when we get to tournament time. And we know the Cougars, it's, it's an issue. So we'll see what happens. Uh we lost Sean, but I'm going to record a show with Frank from Rockets Chop Shop on the latest painful Houston Rockets takeaways. Just want to remind you that as we close things out, still no new coach as of our Monday night recording. Uh, me and Sean, we will be back on Thursday to talk about potentially a new Rockets coach. I don't know. Potentially a new Texans coach. Who knows? Potentially a new Astros GM. Who knows? Uh, we'll have all that. But uh, we lost Sean, and so we're going to take off. Have a great one, everybody. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Hey, don't forget to support us by subscribing and commenting on YouTube. You can always listen to us on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends about us and share our show links on social media. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.